Peter, a warm welcome officially now from Maximilian and me to the Mother Earth Heroes Show podcast. Happy that you are here. We already started with a question and we dived already a little bit in the question. So let's keep up with that after a short introduction of yourself when it's all right. So who is Peter Kalmus in a nutshell? All right. So I am a climate scientist at NASA uh, and I'm extremely concerned about climate breakdown. Um, I, was, I got my PhD in astrophysics and I was doing astrophysics for uh, several years, for almost a decade. Then I got so worried about climate breakdown that I had to switch into atmospheric science and that's when I started working at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I'm speaking on my own behalf. And I, um, I'm also a climate activist and I live my life with about a tenth of the fossil fuel use of the average uh, person in the US. Um, and this is because I just, it feels completely wrong for me to burn fossil fuels since I see how much harm it causes and just hyper aware of the permanence. When you emit that carbon dioxide, you burn that, gal that liter of petrol and you emit that carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it's effectively permanent uh, and it's causing damage from the coral reefs to the forests, to wildfires, to hurricanes, uh, ecosystems are breaking down, um, food systems and water systems are threatened. So knowing all that, I just, I don't like burning this stuff anymore. And then as an activist, as an advocate for climate action, I find that when I burn less fossil fuel, my message, which is basically, this is an urgent issue that we need to act on, that message of urgency becomes much more powerful. Nice. Nice. I have one, one question in, in that regard. Um, yeah. Since, I mean, it's so easy to talk about like uh, climate change is happening, blah, 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 but some people are really saying we're facing the next wave of extinction as, um, as creatures on this, on this planet. Um, I was talking to uh, someone at the climate action um, or the global strike in, in New York. And uh, they recommended me a book, The Ends of the World, uh, by Peter Brennan. Um, and this, the, this person I talked to was a, a science major in um, interplanetary science. Uh, science. Um, so it sounds very similar to, to what you are doing. Um, how much of it is true? Are we really facing the next wave of human extinction? Well, we're, we're in the sixth mass extinction right now. And the extinction rate is, I think it's very hard to quantify exactly how high the extinction rate is, but some estimates I've seen are a thousand or 10,000 times the background rate. So um, we're, we're, we're already losing species that we haven't even discovered yet. <laughs> and, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that there's a uh, kind of huge threat of, of human extinction. Um, I haven't seen any solid evidence for what's called near-term human extinction. Um, I know a lot of people are afraid of that, um, but, but I don't see a lot of scientific evidence for that because I, I think humans are sort of like cockroach, cockroaches and, and we, but, but I, you know, and you have to understand too, with climate breakdown, not all parts of the planet are gonna become uninhabitable. The tropics might, later this century, might become, might become very hard for humans to maintain a presence in the tropics like we have right now with you know, billions of people living in India and Central Africa and, and you know, South America, uh, you know, Northern Australia, Indonesia. Those areas of the planet, um, even some parts of uh, Asia, 
might become hard for humans to live in because there's just going to be too many days per year that are kind of beyond the human body's capacity to uh, to get rid of heat. So the combination of higher temperatures and humidity uh, makes our you know, like our sweat system, our cooling system become less efficient. Uh, and then it's hard for the human body to actually be outside in that sort of weather. So, so those people will start to leave um, and they'll start to move toward the poles, just like all the other species on the planet are doing right now. Um, and that's going to cause, you know, a huge wave of climate migration. Um, and that's going to cause political destabilization. So, you know, I think we, we, I don't think humans are going to become extinct, but I think our food and water systems will be threatened. And maybe even more importantly, uh, geopolitical stability is going to be threatened. And we could see an increase of authoritarian regimes and climate wars. And there's certainly, I don't think there's any scientific case that could be made strongly that would guarantee that there might not be billions of deaths and widespread suffering. So it was very hard to predict the geopolitical and social outcome, outcomes from climate breakdown. The climate models can say, you know, um, can project how warm, how much hotter a certain place will be, or how much more precipitation a certain place will be. It can make estimates about drought. So, so sort of geophysical environmental variables can be predicted from the global climate models with certain range of uncertainty. But translating that into how it's going to affect like the human social geopolitical system is very, very difficult. Okay, Peter. But those are, those are a lot of the things that keep me up at night, personally. Yes, and uh, because they keep you up at night, and I, we we saw you before before of this interview, and even now in this interview, as a real as a person who is really bought into this topic, why have you decided to go into science and not like entrepreneurship, politics, or whatever? Why do you <laughs> like? Does this has the biggest yeah. impact, or? That's a great question, actually. Um, uh, well, you know, I think all of us should be. What we need to do is, as individuals, um, when once we start taking this crisis seriously, we, as every any one of us, needs to start doing everything we can. And and part of what that means is speaking out a lot. We need a billion climate activists. Um, so, however you can convince other people to join this movement is wonderful. Uh, one wonderful thing to do is to actually burn less fossil fuel in your own life because that sends a clear message of urgency and it makes your voice that much more authentic. I mean, Greta Thunberg could not be Greta Thunberg if she was still burning a lot of fossil fuel. It just wouldn't work. She would not have the influence she has. And that's, that's equally true of every environmental advocate, every climate advocate. Now, the reason I, I'm sticking with science is just because I love science. <laughs> I, it's just the way my brain works. Um, I'm trained as a scientist. It's one way that I personally can contribute to action on this since it's, you know, I think each of us, if, if, you're, um, if you're good at music, you know, you can make music about climate breakdown. You know, if you're good at writing, you can write about it. If you're good at being a lawyer, you can become an environmental lawyer. Um, if you're you know, an engineer, you can become an environmental engineer. If you love politics, you can run for office and you know, be an advocate for climate action in office. Uh, whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you love and you're passionate about, um, you should think of ways to use, to leverage that to, um, to grow this movement as quickly as possible. So I happen to love science and I'm pretty good at it. And um, 
you know, it's, it was something that there weren't a lot of climate scientists who were trying to live with less fossil fuel and who were willing to really stick their necks out and say, this is an urgent problem and speak to the public about this. You know, when I, when I started speaking to the public as a scientist, it felt really scary just because, you know, scientists, I had this sense that scientists weren't supposed to do that. We were supposed to like kind of maintain, project this image of objectivity and stay above the fray and not, you know, um, you know, not be emotional, be like Spock. And so I'm like, you know what, that's frankly, that's bullshit. And scientists have a critical role in speaking out on this because, you know, it's a, it's a deeply complex topic. And to fully understand climate breakdown, frankly, it requires the tools of science because you need models to, to kind of get a sense of what the planet's going to look like in the year 2100 and beyond. You need data to see what's actually going on in the planet right now, and you need data analysis to understand that. So it's very difficult for the public to just go to the peer-reviewed literature and be like, ooh, this is an urgent issue and we need to actually take action on this. So if scientists are just trying to like be all calm and they're not willing to express emotion on this and they're not willing to express urgency, the public looks at those scientists and they get the wrong sense that maybe this isn't so urgent. So, um, you know, I felt, I, I love the science. I really wanted to understand the earth system better. And I also saw a role that I could step into as a scientist who is willing to speak out on this stuff. And it, it did feel scary at first. It feels less scary now because more and more scientists are starting to follow this and, and they're starting to speak out too. And I get, I hear from senior scientists who I was afraid as a junior scientist, I was afraid like, you know, all the senior scientists are going to be like, you shouldn't be doing this, but far from it. Like a lot of senior scientists talk to me privately. They email me, they start speaking out. They say they're really glad that I'm speaking out. Um, so it hasn't turned out to be a bad thing for me at all. And, and I think that's because the culture is shifting. Um, one question in, in, in regards, you, you touched a, a couple of very important points, um, mainly Uh, that you are using climate models to predict the climate, uh, the breakdown to understand the Earth system better. And um, what we found, or what I also personally found when I was doing research myself, is that um, maybe it's, 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 it's coming from me, it's my own perspective, but I find that science is not very effective in communicating well what is really happening. It is all in a bunch of reports, it is all in, I mean, nobody reads the IPCC report. I would even doubt that most of the policymakers involved in climate change are reading even the, the, the policy report fully. Um, and I, I tried that and I find it, um, I mean, it was very insightful, but it was redundant and, um, and I didn't feel that somebody wanted to share this information with me. So it, it, it was really uh, like being crypto encoded almost for only being readable for scientists. Yeah. So what do you think about the communication aspect of science? Well, I, I think that's exactly right. So um, what I found, I've been, a, I've been an advocate for climate action for 13 years. And um, in the beginning, I didn't have a lot of success. But what I found from giving hundreds of talks to the public and writing so many articles about this and even writing a book about it. Uh, so so I've, I've engaged with this in this space for years. And what I see is there's, there's basically three modes of communication. There's facts, 
and that's how scientists like to talk to each other. That's when we write a paper, we, we stick with the evidence and with the facts. Um, and people whose minds work scientifically, that's, that's basically, that's people who can be really uh, take the facts seriously and, and kind of see the implications of them and, and be persuaded by facts alone. Those people tend to become scientists, to be honest. Um, but there's two other modes, which I think are much more important for, for communicating what's happening and the urgency of what's happening to the public. Those two modes are emotions and actions. Okay, so um, if basically if a, if a scientist is able to like show these plots of ocean heat content increasing and ice sheets melting away and sea level rising, all of that and explain what that means and how it's measured, but then can also step out of that scientific role and say, now, now I'm speaking to you as a human. I'm speaking to you as a citizen. I'm speaking to you as a father. This stuff is super serious and it's terrifying. <laughs> it's, it has implications for my kids. I'm really afraid for their future because it means this and it means that. And you know, so I was speaking to you as a scientist before and now I'm speaking to you as a human. That's far more impactful, right? And then if I can say like, and, and I think this is so urgent that I can't fly anymore. It feels disgusting for me to get on the plane and I haven't flown since 2012 because I know that burning this stuff burning that kerosene for the airplane, burning the gasoline for the car, you know, it, it's causing this harm. It's, it's what's driving this problem. And, you know, when I get on a plane, it feels like I'm, I, I'm killing the future for my kids. And it feels like I'm killing the coral reefs and I can't do that anymore. <laughs> I just can't. So then if I can, if I can say like, I, I find this so urgent that I'm actually making these significant changes to my life, then the public starts to get it. So, so I would say that, um, when I communicate to the public, I try to make it a combination of all of three of those modes. Like, here's what the science is saying. Here's my emotional response to it. Um, I, sometimes I even can't help but crying a little bit when I give these talks. But, you know, I can't control that. Sometimes it just comes or it doesn't come. But um, it always takes me by surprise when it comes. But, and, and then here are the actions that I'm taking. I, I think that's a much more effective way to communicate with the public. Um, Peter, that, that is... Uh... I, I think you are on point with the with the three points of how communication should be also like the different perspectives of it, not only leading with facts, but for people to actually act, we have to have emotions. What I, but what I see is a lot of people, individuals, even Al Gore holding presentations, you holding presentations, um, and trying to change people one by one. But here's the question, like, what do we really need in order to make this available to as many people as possible, right? There are to make the science available to as many people as possible? The facts, just like, um, because what, what I have in my head is maybe something like a, uh, that's just brainstorming, uh, something like a website where you see the whole globe and then you see what is actually happening in real time. There are floods happening. Here's um, that we are... Uh, having uh, ice sheets melt down, you know, like visual appearances instead of individuals uh, going from one presentation to another. Is there something like that going on, like making, making the information of the status quo as accessible as possible? Or I don't think that there is a, unfortunately, I don't think that there's a silver bullet for that. I think that what's happening, uh, so, okay, for, for a member of the public to become engaged with this issue, 
and to make it a top issue that they're going to vote on so that if a politician, what we need is for people basic, hey, let, let's take a step back. What we really need is sweeping collective change. We need a massive global mobilization on climate change because we, we've procrastinated for so long that we don't have time anymore for incremental stuff. Okay. So we need things like, you know, rising carbon fees with dividends. Um, we need green new deals. We need policies that uh, prevent any new fossil fuel infrastructure from being built, you know, or any new fossil fuel exploration to happen. You know, we, we can't, we can't quit cold Turkey because you know, our, all of our systems of life, our food systems and transportation systems rely on um, fossil fuels right now. So, so if we quit cold turkey, people would die. Lots of people would die. But we have, to, we have to be willing to make sacrifices and we have to have these sweeping collective changes. So how do we get that? Well, we need um, politicians who feel like they'll lose their jobs if they don't do these things. All right. So how do we get those politicians in office? We need everyone. We, we need voters to... If the politicians don't do this, they'll get voted out. And up until now, we've had voters, you know, wanting to vote against these things because they didn't see it as a big issue. So how do we get voters to make this their top issue, basically, right? Um, that's the question. Well, for that, we, it, we, I think we need a grassroots mobilization, which is what's been starting to happen over the last 11 months. Um, so the IPCC uh, report on uh, 1.5 degrees of warming came out last October. That caused Greta Thunberg to climate strike. That caused Extinction Rebellion to happen. In the US, Sunrise Movement happened. Now we have, because of all that, we have presidential candidates in the US tripping over themselves to make really massive, ambitious climate plans that could actually turn the ship around, right? Whereas in 2016, uh, I, I don't think that they, they talked in a debate for more than a, a couple of minutes about climate change. So it's a huge shift in less than a year, in about 11 months. And the shift is still going, all right? It's waking people up. Um, but it's happening at a grassroots level, which means that if you're, if you're talking to an average person who's like, yeah, I've heard of climate change, but I think, you know, I think the economy is more important, or I think um, education or healthcare is more important than this. How do you get that person to raise climate to be their top issue, right? Yeah. I don't think facts is really the thing that's going to do it. I've been trying that, like I said, I've been trying just to hit people with facts for years, and that's not what gets them. What gets them is if you already see this as a top issue, explain what it means to you and allow yourself to express those emotions. If you're enraged by this, let that come out. If you're terrified, let that come out. You can, you can have some facts at hand to say, you know, like why this matters to you. But the facts basically just back up your emotions. The facts aren't the thing at the forefront. The emotions at the forefront and what you're actually doing. You know, for example, if you're, if you're a member of Extinction Rebellion and you got arrested and you're talking to someone, you know, talk about how you got arrested and why you did that. You know, if you're an 80-year-old woman who was blocking a street and, got, and, and spent a night in jail for that, you know, that's an amazing thing to talk about because what you're telling the person that you're queuing up with, you know, the stranger, what you're, what you're telling them is that this is a super urgent issue to you and you're willing to make these kinds of sacrifices to do something about it. And that's what's going to move people. And unfortunately... I don't think that we can just write one really slick website, which will cause that to happen. I think putting these facts out there, you know, I wrote my book, but when you write a book, you, you think, oh man, my book's so great. It's going to sweep through the world and, and make this massive change happen. That's not how it works. It, and so now I haven't gone through that process of 
putting out a book. And you might feel like this when you start a new podcast or when you start a new website, you might have this hope that it's going to be the thing that really catalyzes action and changes the world. It's unlikely to do that, but it is an important piece in the puzzle. It's, it's one more piece pushing people toward this kind of action. Um, but the grassroots action, it's, it takes time um, and it takes face-to-face -face interaction and it just takes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles and books and websites and people working on this, right, to get to those billion climate activists. So what I took away with is that it needs a mass of people changing things. But what I recognize as well in the presidential candidates, uh, which you are um, like teasered a little bit, the Tom Steyer, for example, I, I, I really love how like hard he goes uh, with uh, setting like um, on the first day of his presidential um, uh, seat, uh, the, the climate I don't know how to call it actually in uh, English uh, thingy out, but what I wanted to ask is how does this movement look like? Because what I have the feeling is that all these people being active, they're missing, they're missing the, the, next, the next stepping stone. How does this next stepping stone after being on the streets, after doing a lot of um, stuff that all the people around know about climate change, what is the next picture we need for all of this mass of people who are, are in action already? Well, okay, so first of all, it can't go away. The, the movement can't go away, because if it goes away, the political pressure goes away. So the movement has to keep growing, all right? So we need to keep talking to elected officials, we need to keep talking to the media, uh, and to keep building this, and to keep pressuring them. So, so for example, like, you know, uh, it's a little thing, but when, when I see like the US national radio talking about a hurricane and not explaining that, climate breakdown is and global heating is making this hurricane stronger. I call them out on Twitter and I might get, I might get a thousand, you know, retweets or something, but that's enough for them, for them to actually hear this. And we, we've actually seen the meek, the global media have this kind of week of like putting the climate story at the very top of the page as it should be. All right. And that's huge because the media has basically been ignoring this for years, um, which has been a, a huge source of frustration to me. Um, so there, again, there's no. I, I, I think that the I think that the climate movement that we're seeing now is exactly the thing that needs to happen. Um, I think we need the strikes to happen every Friday. I think we need a couple times a year these massive strikes. Um, I think we need uh, other organizations in every country that are putting pressure on politicians in a way that's appropriate for that country. So in the U.S., the Sunrise Movement is, has been the, the appropriate thing here. Um, And England, Extinction Rebellion has been huge. And they've, they've had a, in England, uh, in the UK, there's been a huge shift in how, um, how the MPs are talking about climate breakdown. And that's really come from Extinction Rebellion and that's spreading through the world. Um, and I don't know what new organizations are going to crop up over the course of the next year. You know, I don't know how many thousands of people or maybe tens of thousands of people or maybe more will get arrested over the, the next year. You know, I don't know if there's going to be a group of police in various countries that says enough is enough. Like, what if the police became climate activists and said, I'm tired of, of arresting grannies about climate change because they're right. They're, they're scared about their grandkids and I'm tired of arresting them because they're right. So we need action at the government level. And we can't predict what's going to happen next in the grassroots mobilization, except that we, we had 
literally millions of people in the streets last Friday. And the next time it happens in November, we're gonna have tens of millions of people in the streets. And then the next time it happens, we're gonna have hundreds of millions, right? So that's, that's my vision of how this happens. And it becomes very, very cool to be a climate activist, right? Suddenly. And then it becomes very, very uncool for somebody, for a president to say climate change is a hoax, right? And suddenly if your party, if your political party is the party, party that's for climate denial, you're gonna see a collapse of this political party. I, I think that climate breakdown is gonna be a huge factor in uh, the elections in the US 14 months from now, much bigger than, than the pundits are saying right now. The reason I'm saying that is because there's so much momentum in the grassroots movement that it, it's grown hugely over the last 11 months and we've still got 14 months to go before the election. We have no idea how big it's gonna get over the next 14 months. But I think it's gonna it's gonna be a huge factor for getting people out to vote. Um, and then once those politicians are in office, uh, they're gonna be super afraid of losing their jobs if they don't carry the ball down the field and actually make the kinds of changes that we need to implement this mass mobilization. So you can tell that I'm I'm more I, I'm actually more optimistic than I than I have been throughout my 13 years of climate advocacy even though the, um, the climate impacts are getting more and more ridiculous. Like the fires in California are, go they're crazy. Um, and uh, you know, the hurricanes are getting crazy. And, um, and that, that could make somebody feel like it's time to give up. But for me, it's just the opposite. I, I think we've reached a sort of social tipping point. Um, and yeah, and I don't think that the movement can go away because it's driven by physics. So it's driven by exponentially increasing uh, uh, CO2 in the atmosphere, which is driving a steady increase in global heating, which is causing more water vapor to be in the atmosphere, stronger hurricanes, worse wildfires. And that's what's driving this movement. So unlike movements that are protesting, for example, economic inequality, which if you know, there's a good economy, those protest movements tend to go away. There's, this protest movement won't go away until there's the kind of action we actually need on climate breakdown. It can't, it's driven by physics. It's the first protest movement in the history of the world that's driven by physics. There, there, there I have a question. Um, <clears throat> and it's, it's probably the most pressing issue that we ever had in, in some decades, besides wars or anything like that. But Nick told, uh, told me today a story that was pretty interesting um, about the Vietnam War. It was also very big, a lot of people on the streets. And um, uh, I don't know if the, the number is precise, but he said 80 million people in total on the streets uh, in the whole world. So the question is, how big does this movement need to be? And do you really think that only activism and pressure on politics is the solution? Um, because I saw when I, when I was speaking to, um, to young people protesting, I mean, we, we kind of have this excuse, so to speak, that politicians will handle it. You know, like when we have enough pressure on politics, this stuff will be handled. Do you really believe that? Or do you think we have to put more stakeholders into that vote? Um, because industry, businesses, 
they are all also very like responsible for that issue. Yeah. Right? So okay. So I think that the the politicians and the corporations basically follow the people, unfortunately. So I actually sat down to lunch with a couple of Shell executives a few weeks ago, and the main takeaway from that meeting with them, you know, I I'm like. I'm kind of like, you guys are good people, you know, how can you be contributing to the, basically this destruction of life on earth? Yeah. And um, what they said, the main takeaway is that um, they will go as fast as their customers let them. That's it. Oh man. Right. And that's it. And they have, they, their, their main, um, the, they're beholden to their shareholders. They have to make profits for their shareholders. And yeah. so, um, you know, What's happening now is it's starting because of the protests, because of the grassroots movement, it's starting to become more and more clear to investors that um, investing in fossil fuel is investing in technology of the 20th century and the 19th century. Yeah. And it's not investing in the 21st century because with, uh, as this grassroots movement grows um, and as climate breakdown gets worse and worse, it's going to become so clear to everyone that we can't keep burning this stuff, that we're killing ourselves by burning this stuff. And, and, and you know, once that happens, we're going to start seeing policies. We're going to see carbon fee and dividend, which is going to make fossil fuels very, very expensive in a very quick amount of time. And so it's going to become not cost effective to make a new coal plant for producing electricity. It's just not going to make any sense financially. So the smart money is already, like the University of California, um, which is the biggest public university and arguably the best public university in the world, just completely divested from fossil fuels last week. And they had an op-ed in the LA Times where they said, they're not doing it because it's the right thing to do. They're doing it because they think fossil fuels is a terrible investment and they don't want to lose money on it. All right. So, so yeah, I think that we can't wait for corporations to lead because they never will. And there's a few politicians that are able to, to lead a little bit because they come from uh, uh, constituencies that want them to lead, okay? So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York City, for example, she's able to push really hard for climate action because she knows that's what her constituents want and that's why she got part of why she got elected, all right? But so even her, like she, she can only go as far as her constituents let her go because you can't be a politician or you can't be a corporation that's moving forward on this when that's not what your constituents or your customers want because they'll just find a new politician, right? So we, the, the only way corporations and politicians are gonna help us here is if they feel like they're gonna lose their jobs or they're gonna lose their customers if they don't do this. So yeah, the, the grassroots movement is it's the key to unlocking everything. It's the, it's, it's the thing that's been missing. What, what does grassroots movement mean? Is, is that just uh, a term for what is happening uh, in general, like with Sunrise Movement and Extinction Rebellion, or is that another movement on its own? Grassroots movement is what's happening now. It just means getting a huge number of people to see this as an urgent issue. That's it. So the grassroots movement is, it wakes people up, and then that, that gets taken to the voting booth. And then you vote, you know, then you get the politicians into office that are actually going to make a change. Um, that's how it works. So it's a shift in culture. It also means that more and more people are realizing that burning fossil fuels is causing harm. And no, you know, very few people actually want to cause harm. You know, most people want to, to feel like they're doing right by their kids and doing right by their neighbors and doing right by the planet. 
that's what most people want. Um, so they, they, it's not always clear to, to members of the public what to do though, it's complicated. Um, do I use less plastic straws or do I take fewer flights? So, you know, um, the grassroots movement basically just says we, it's kind of like a very broad brush that says we want climate action. <laughs> and then it's up to uh, the politicians and to smart um, policymakers uh, and to maybe a little bit to scientists to figure out what those policies are, um, uh, you know, and, and that's being worked out behind the scenes by, you know, by economists and by policymakers. Um, you know, economists think, and they're correct, that a keystone for climate action, I've mentioned it several times, is a, you know, rising uh, carbon fee and dividend. And by the way, just to be very clear, it's not a carbon tax. A carbon tax wouldn't work. So a carbon price means that you make uh, fossil fuels more expensive, because right now, there's a huge cost to society for emitting a ton of carbon dioxide, right? Because that's what's causing these disasters. That's what's causing islands in the Bahamas to get wiped clean off the face of the earth and towns in California. This is what, so we're bearing a huge cost already for burning this stuff, but the fossil fuel industry is super happy that they don't actually have to pay that price. So the carbon fee adds that price into the price at the pump into the cost of buying an airplane ticket. Anytime there's coal or natural gas or oil that comes out of the ground, there's a certain, a certain price that's put on the amount of CO2 that gets emitted when you burn that stuff. And that price goes up year on year. But if, if that's all that happened, it would be a carbon tax. And you know, uh, lower income households spend a much larger fraction on energy costs, and it would be punitive to them. So what you do to keep that from happening and to keep them from protesting, keep the gilets jaunes from going out into the street, um, you need to give all that money back to the people as a dividend, okay? So then you have this incentive to shift away from fossil fuels, but you're not, it's progressive and you're not punishing the lower income households. They get a, they get a check in the mail every month, basically. Uh, so they're very happy and it's a very popular program. Um, and, and it shifts us away. And then there's a million other things that we need to do policy-wise. But the point is, we, we know what the policy solutions are, but there's not the political will to implement them. And that's why we need the grassroots movement, is to create that political space. Yeah. Let's say, let's say um, our listeners are a lot on the streets, a lot, a lot out there, and they try to push things forwards, but they are really young, right? And they, they, don't, they don't have much working experience and experience out there in the world. Let's say they're listening at the moment and they're asking themselves, all right, nice. Now I know what will happen, what should happen, how we can make pressure, but who will lead this? Who will lead this transformation we need with this from fossil fuel to, to something new? And how can I, as a, as a person, prepare best for pushing this change forward? Hmm. Well, again, you know, uh, I... I, that depends on that depends very much on the person you know like i've tried to say before um I, i think it depends on how how much knowledge you have about these things um how informed you are so the you know for the average person uh the, the first thing to do is to just start talking about this and then to join a group that exists um uh in your area that so, so here in the U.S., there's something called Citizens Climate Lobby, which is pushing for a carbon fee and dividend. Again, in the U.K., there's Extinction Rebellion. Um, there's 350.org. There's, there's dozens and dozens of, of organizations that a person could join 
depending on their interests, right? Depending on how much risk they want to, to push in this grassroots movement. Once you join a group, you have a tribe and uh, it becomes, you become much less anxious about this because you feel like you're making more of a difference. Your voice is joined together with the voices of others. So your voice suddenly becomes more powerful. And you, you start to talk to people who've been thinking about this for years. And so you become informed much, much more quickly. And then once you're informed, you can start to see the pressure points and how you might want to increase your voice and make more of a difference and possibly become a leader. Maybe you'll become a leader in the group. You know, maybe you'll start doing nonviolent civil disobedience. Maybe you'll decide to run for office. That's, this is all completely up to you, but you have to, you can't suddenly just expect to know what to do. Um, you have to start by getting informed, joining together with others, um, and getting engaged, that's it. So you start getting engaged, um, then you start to see how you can get engaged more, then you start to see how you can get engaged more, and so on. But you can't do that just by sitting on your couch. You have to start somewhere, and you have to start getting engaged. This is also where we see our, our place, so to speak, in this movement. We want to be something like a channel from people standing at Fridays for Future. I mean, I was talking to a 15-year-old guy who had a t-shirt that said, talk less, do more. Um, and I was like, all right, um, here's the challenge. Listen to our podcast, find out what people are already doing, educate yourself. And, um, and if you could maybe give us afterwards a list or something of, of resources where we can channel people to, um, that would be great. But also, how can... I mean, people like us, for example, we, um, we, we know so many people that are starting a business to become rich, uh, multimillionaires, and then clean the ocean, do something good for the world. And this is a recurring pattern, like in, in the people we are friends with, ourselves as well. Um, how can we start pressuring the, the policymakers, maybe by starting a business, maybe by you know, like, where's our leverage? Because it's always great to say, all right, these, there's the policymakers, but it's very abstract. How can somebody have some traction by maybe starting something? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd say a better t-shirt would be talk more, do more, <laughs> because um, we're, not, we're still not talking about this enough. Um, uh, you know, I, I met many people on Friday morning who didn't even know that there was a global climate strike happening. So we still have a long way to go just in, in terms of raising awareness. So we do need to talk more, absolutely. But we also need to do more. Um, again, you know, I, there's, there's, a, there's probably a million entrepreneurial uh, opportunities to actually make money and help with the climate crisis. Um, I would encourage people to give up the idea of becoming a billionaire. I think Billionaires are actually part of the problem here because what what being a billionaire represents is that you have hoarded so many resources to yourself and And that's you know, that's not the way nature works nature an apple tree doesn't say these are my apples The apple tree makes the apples and then gives them away and and knows it trusts in nature that next year there will be more apples um, so I, I think you know, maybe being a millionaire is an okay uh, goal, but I think one of the policies that I would recommend once we have this large grassroots movement is that there's a limit on wealth because, um, you know, if you're, if you're a billionaire, you're going to have private planes, you're going to be, have multiple homes, you're going to be living on multiple continents. And that's a huge carbon impact that you have. 
All right, so that's not sustainable anymore. Being a billionaire simply is not sustainable anymore. And frankly, um, on a planet with limited resources, we, we just do need to distribute those resources more equitably because there's so many billions that don't even have enough yet, right? So, um, so we're, we're, we're on a planet straining at its seams and we need you know, people to eat less meat. <laughs> we need you know, resources to be distributed more equitably and all of the above. We need, we need obviously to ramp down fossil fuels. So, so again, um, I, you know, I don't have like a, a great entrepreneurial idea up my sleeve. Um, I'm personally not interested in getting rich. Um, so I don't, I don't think very hard about what are the opportunities for getting rich here. Um, you know, uh, but there are a lot of opportunities, well, you know, focus. I, yeah. even um, because there are like talks going on to change the, the economic model in its own, mm -hmm. like that we don't have our main key performance indicator uh, of the GDP, but something different that also takes the ecolo uh, ecology in, in, into account. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. And, and uh, you know, economists need to start shifting to um, ecological uh, economics like you said, that takes into account um, the, the fact that we can't keep growing exponentially on a finite planet. Uh, we can't keep growing our population on a finite planet. Um, you know, to, to make money off of this um, kind of the, the vision for the future, just look at something that is going to go away um, when we no longer burn fossil fuels and start to think of how you can help make the alternative to that thing so that people can keep living their lives. That's where the entrepreneurial opportunities are. For example, we won't have the resources for everyone to have uh, their own private car, even if it's electrically powered by renewable electricity. I still think that private cars are gonna go away. So, so what's, the, what's the alternative? You know, there's gonna be better public transit, but maybe there's gonna be some kind of car sharing program. Do people really like Uber? Do they like having a driver in the car with them? I would say probably not. So what's the next thing? Like, how do we actually share cars and allow people to drive them? Uh, maybe there's like a new kind of form of car sharing that isn't Uber that could become big. And that's, a, that's maybe a way for somebody to make money. Um, or maybe e-bikes are going to be the, a huge thing. So how do we, is there a way to monetize e-bikes? I, I don't think that, I, I see these bike sharing programs in inner cities and I'm not totally convinced that they're the thing that's going to work. But maybe there's uh, some way to like, actually share e-bikes where people have um, kind of partial ownership of the e-bike. I, I don't know, or maybe there's a group of people that trust each other. The, pr the problem, everything comes back to human trust, right? Um, so if you have a shared resource, somehow there has to be a trust element uh, where so people don't just trash the resource, right? Um, and that's, you know, how do we kind of build that trust into these kind of, you know, so I don't know, like, again, that's, you know, I'm glad that there's entrepreneurs that are thinking about these things. It's not, it's not my natural inclination to try to monetize this. Maybe to, to finish off this um, really, really amazing picture I have in my mind right now with two questions, uh, which is first, we tapped a little bit into that now from two perspectives um, into your utopia. Like you talked about the apple tree, like what is it you are fighting for? What is it you would love to see with all your efforts and all the efforts of all the people in the world? Well, ultimately, the, the, and I don't know how long this is going to take, but we need a humanity that has a completely different mindset on how it lives on this planet. So 
you know, the Bible says that we're supposed to have dominion over all of the things on the land and all the things in the sea and that we basically conquer and we're like somehow the most special species created in God's image. I think that's an incredibly harmful sort of um, mental narrative for humanity. And it's what's part of what's led us down this path of destruction that now is coming home to roost. So we need to realize that we're one species among many. And we're not necessarily smarter than these other species or better than these other species. We have to respect trees as beings and we have to respect other animals as beings. And we have to respect the whole web of life and just like learn to have sympathetic joy for all the other beings that live on this planet. Uh, and we're in this amazing spaceship that's floating through the coldest, you know, most uninhabitable void of space. And it's, it's teeming, we're, it's just crazy to think about it. We're, we're in this tiny little spaceship which is teeming with abundant life of just millions of species of, of very different colors and different forms. It's this joyful thing. <laughs> and, and we're like, we're all depressed and we're taking more drugs and we never have enough and we all want to get rich and we're like staring at our phones and getting more and more anxious and depressed when we're, it's just the, the miracle of being on this spaceship with all of its bounty. Like we got to come out of our screens and start seeing how we're part of nature and how wonderful and beautiful this nature is and, and just be, you know, have this gratitude for being here, right? And just this joy and want to see all the rest of nature flourish along with us. Um, so that's, that's my vision for the future. Um, it's going to take some time to get there. <laughs> um, first, even before we get there, we have to get away from fossil fuels. Then we have to figure out how to stabilize our population. And, uh, and then maybe eventually we'll learn how to kind of have this shared joy of being on this planet with all these other species. So we take the last two minutes now as an evening affirmation for all of us, I think. So we can every evening listen into this and um, tap into the amazing spaceship world. Um, Peter, thank you a lot. Um, maybe to, 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 to um, we finish this always off with, what are your actually Mother Earth's heroes? You know, like you left us with so much inspiration. Who is leaving you with inspiration? Uh, well, you know, at the risk of being cliched, obviously Greta Thunberg, um, there's been, there are a few, what, what she, you know, what she's doing is, um, I, I'm not sure everyone realizes just how remarkable it is, uh, because, um, she is, she's taking the science and she is seeing the implications of the science. And then she's actually standing up to the, the most powerful people on the planet and saying it. Uh, and, and that takes tremendous courage and that takes tremendous ability to articulate and it takes a tremendous ability to, to kind of like listen to others and build a team. Um, so I, I, you know, she's, she's much more than just somebody at the right place at the right time. Um, you know, she is a true leader. She's walking the talk. Um, she's rally and, and she has this authenticity and fearlessness, which is causing her to rally not just young people, but everyone around her. So there is this, there is this leadership vacuum, uh, you know, because too many environmental leaders were these famous people that were flying on private jets and they just weren't inspiring. Um, and, you know, she is genuinely inspiring. And, uh, you know, she said that through action comes real hope. Uh, and I completely agree with her. You know, hope doesn't come from, uh, from you know, seeing a, a curve of, 
uh, of solar power getting adopted more, right? Hope comes from, from seeing people together doing action. Uh, and so, you know, I think that the real change that's starting to happen now is that the social inflection point is what's going, we, we, I see a path now toward the kind of action that is actually gonna make a difference and start to rapidly turn the emissions curve down. Uh, and so this is not the time to sit on the couch. This is the time for everyone to do everything they can and to push as hard as they can, right? We have the momentum now and we have to build on that. Um, to follow up on that and maybe, maybe to, um, to sum it up, summarize it, um, like you say, uh, join a group, um, educate yourself and push the, the policymakers, pressure them. Um, but what would you say when somebody is now listening, what kind of skill set do they need? What kind of um, mindset do they need? And what right. do you want to lead people after hearing that? Uh, so I, I kind of like thought about this a lot and there's six steps that I would recommend everyone to think about um, uh, to, to kind of get involved and to make your voice as big as it can be. So the first one is just to talk a lot, to talk every chance you get, okay? And most of these six steps are about how to kind of make your voice more powerful because that's the way that change happens in a democratic society is by voices getting stronger, right? The second one is to join together in groups, which we've already talked about. So that's a way to bring your voice into unison with other voices, which makes it stronger and also to become more informed, all right? The third one is to walk the talk, to actually use less fossil fuel in your life. And that's a lifelong thing. You know, it takes many years to kind of get good at, at to find out where your emissions are coming from and then to start to use less. It took me a couple of years to go from flying to being a frequent flyer to not flying at all anymore. Um, and that's part of why I wrote my book, which is Being the Change, uh, Live Well and Spark a Climate Revolution. It'll help you kind of get your thoughts organized on how you can use less fossil fuel. And also kind of give you the science and other steps that you can take. Um, the fourth step is to engage politically. So to get out in the streets, um, maybe to think about nonviolent uh, civil disobedience. Um, and then the fifth one is to simply take care of yourself, right? So especially as you're learning uh, the kind of the gravity and the seriousness of the climate crisis, it can be difficult to hold that knowledge. So, so make sure you get enough sleep, get enough exercise, eat well. Um, joining a group, a lot of these things support each other. So joining together with a group gives you, the, gives you emotional support too. So it's also a form of taking care of yourself. And then the sixth one is maybe for all the entrepreneurs, uh, it's get creative and be courageous about your creativity. So use your own um, passion and your own skills, and your own experience and your own networks to come up with ideas that only you can come up with that'll help move the needle on climate action. I love that. That is great. Um, so to, um, yeah, first off, thank you very much, Peter, for, for taking the time. Uh, the steps are very, I, I mean, they, they are based on your last 13 years, you said, uh, you yeah. this movement, right? So yeah. people really take it it's, seriously. It's, it's very, very clear to me that, the, that the, the one thing that anyone can do is to, uh, to help push this movement as fast as possible and to yeah. make their voice as powerful as possible. That's the, generally speaking, that is the, the one, it all boils down to that. Yeah. And all, the, uh, all six of those things are in the service to, to doing that.
that is that is great. Um, I guess there are a lot of people feeling helpless, uh, a lot of people thinking, okay, it's not enough to protest, or they think it's enough to protest, and uh, hopefully we we have waken, uh, awakened them that it's not, um, that you have to be part of a movement if you really have to uh, want to have an impact. Um, where can people check out your book and uh, get your other resources? Uh, so they can check out my webpage, which is peterkalmus.net, and um, that has pretty much all the information. Okay, then let's wrap it up with the really last question. What are your current bottlenecks and how our community can help you solving them? Um, follow me on Twitter. Um, I, I help spread the word there. So I'm climate human on Twitter. Um, and then, you know, I, I do have uh, kind of like a lot of sort of website projects. So, um, you know, if, if you have web skills, for example, or you're willing to kind of like um, help collate information, you know, so there's resources pages that I need to keep up to date. For example, I have a website called noflyclimateside.org, which is uh, pushing for academics and the general public to fly less and is trying to join those community, join the academic community together um, to like get universities and professional organizations to help support flying less. So we could use a few more team members there. Um, if, you're a, if you're an app developer and you're willing to kind of volunteer your skills, uh, we're working on an app that will help users uh, track their carbon emissions over time, compare them to scientific goals of reduction that we need over the coming years, and also help them get more engaged in um, you know, different protest groups. So like I mentioned these groups, but you might be wondering what are the groups in my area and when do they meet and are they having a protest movement or is there a talk at my local library? So we want our app to kind of like also help users connect to those sorts of actions make it easier for them to contact their elected representatives and so forth. So um, and it's a lot of work to make a really good app. You know, anyone can make a junkie app, but we need like actually, you know, top flight developers to help us make this app good and get it out as quickly as possible. So, so yeah, I, I guess my bottleneck weirdly is uh, on mostly on the technical side. So web developers and app developers and a good way for them to get in touch with me is through Twitter at climate human. Amazing. Peter. Thanks a lot. Yeah, well, it was about an hour. So thanks a lot, you guys. I think if we went any longer, your poor listeners would, uh, would start to uh, <laughs> hold it against you. <laughs> cool. Nice. Okay.